Hello everyone, 7 Investing CEO Simon Erickson here, and thank you for listening to the 7 Investing Podcast. Our podcast is made possible by our subscribers, who allow us to empower you to invest in your future each and every month. In exchange, we give our subscribers exclusive access to our monthly stock market recommendations from each of our lead advisors. To support this podcast and join other 7 Investing fans in our exclusive Subscribers Forum, where we discuss the latest market moves in real time, go to 7investing.com slash subscribe to subscribe to 7investing today. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7investing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of our 7investing podcast, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. You can learn more about our long-term investing approach and see our favorite stock market recommendations each and every month at 7investing.com slash subscribe. I'm 7investing founder and CEO, Simon Erickson. I'm excited to chat today about investing in technology because there's a lot going on in the tech world these days. Uh, we've certainly seen the embrace of artificial intelligence and GPT seems to be something on everyone's mind as OpenAI now has more than 100 million monthly active users in just its first few months of its release. In addition to that, though, we're seeing Silicon Valley, several of the largest tech firms are laying off tens of thousands of employees. So there's a lot to be keeping an eye on. I'm very excited to welcome my guests to the program today. Gene Munster and Doug Clinton are both managing partners of Deepwater Asset Management. They're joining me from both the Northeast and Midwest United States today. Gene and Doug, welcome to the 7 Investing Podcast. Great to be here. Thank you, Simon. Excited to chat about a lot of things. You know, we've got an interesting time to be an investor. It's a interesting macro out there, to say the least. Uh, we mentioned some of the technologies that have everyone's attention right now. But maybe let's start with the 10,000 foot. Uh, Gene, a lot of people that are familiar with you already, with both of you, might be associating you with Loop Ventures. Uh, you changed names recently. Deepwater is a, is a name change for your firm. Tell me a little bit about the, uh, the firm that you founded six or seven years ago and kind of what your higher level goals are for it. So uh, Deepwater Asset Management is a multi-product growth asset management firm. And what's unique about us is we focus on persistent growth companies, invest in persistent growth companies. Those are companies that grow faster for longer. And so that's what Deepwater Asset Management is. And the name change is representative of a much broader vision that we have for the firm, not only investing in private companies with Loop Ventures, uh, but also in the public markets as well. So Deepwater really doesn't see a distinction between private and public companies. We look for those disruptive companies with persistent growth. And so uh, the team is the core team is the same. Uh, since uh, uh, switching over to Deepwater, we've added a couple big, had a couple big hires. Uh, Joe Robillard has been an asset manager for 30 years, uh, top 10% uh, performance over that time. And also Mike Olson, uh, you may know him from his Netflix days, world famous, kind of being the axe on Netflix. He's also been CFO of an esports company. So joining the other uh, three partners with Doug, Andrew, and I. And so continuing to build out uh, deep water, building on what we started seven years ago with Loop. Let's talk about deep dives, Doug. Before we get into start, start, start talking about individual companies, you know, it seems like you guys like to do the uh, the deep water scuba diving when you're looking for insights of companies. In fact, you guys have a depth finder right up there on your website, and you posted some good stuff about conviction. Uh, it seems like, can you tell me a little bit about your approach? It seems like you're looking for more of a, a, a smaller portfolio, a more higher conviction idea 
portfolio with, with fewer positions, but how do you like to approach uh, new positions that you put into the, into the portfolio there? Well, we are, we are looking for that conviction in what Gene just described around persistent growth. So we think that uh, sort of by definition, finding those kinds of companies is a rare thing. And given how rare it is, you can only have a portfolio of a few of those names that end up really hitting. And so for us, persistent growth, I always like to use the example of, of Apple or Amazon. You rewind back to 2011. Those stocks are both up 10x over that 12-year period. The S&P 500 is up 3x. And so if you think markets are efficient, then you have to ask yourself, well, why did two stocks 10x when the broader market only 3x? And the answer to us is that persistent growth characteristic. The kinds of companies, though, that end up being the Apples and being the Amazons, to kind of state the obvious, are few and far between. And so when we think about building portfolios, you know, we tend to have portfolios of around 20 stocks, 20 to 25 stocks. So we are more concentrated and we're always looking for those kinds of companies where we do have that conviction that there's the possibility for them to grow longer and faster, as Gene described. And Gene, back to you with, with this question. We talked just a little bit more of the 10,000 foot level, but you know, it seems like a balancing act between fundamentals and in the trenches, you know, the 30 tab spreadsheet that looks at the analysis versus the visionary hat and just say, okay, what's the next big thing that's going on out there? How do you approach investing in the technology industry, where there is a lot of unknowns, certainly out there, with uh, kind of the need for fundamentals and the, uh, the other side of investing, the other part of the brain, if you will? It starts with a view of where the world is going and uh, identifying what we see as uh, transformation, pockets of transformation. Uh, when we started Deepwater in 2017, our manifesto outlined three core areas of what we felt were growth. One was related to artificial intelligence, uh, automation, and the metaverse. And two of those three are already taking place. One of them has been slow, but we still believe that it ultimately will gain traction. And so we use that as a, a starting point as these areas where we see transformation. And then based on that, we go and do what a lot of investors do. We go screen through hundreds of companies. And uh, then uh, based on what are some of the growth profiles, we come back to that uh, a list of what we think are companies that have persistent growth. And that is a view of uh, on our daily uh, meeting. Uh, it is a intensely, um, it's, uh, there's a lot of uh, debate within the meeting related to uh, which companies we should be spending time on, which ultimately have those characteristics of persistent growth. And then uh, we get into the kind of the deep dive of, of the modeling piece. And the way Wall Street has evolved, when I started 30 years ago, it was really up to the analyst to build the model. All the historic models, now that's basically a commodity, building your historical models, the, what a company just reported. And what the real uh, uh, value comes from that, that go forward modeling. That's always been the case, but it's even more so the case uh, today. And so that's where we spend our time. We're not spending time uh, building a lot of these models from scratch. Uh, we get models, but we intensely debate all the assumptions going forward to find those companies that are going to grow faster for longer. Yeah, I, I think. Go ahead, Doug. Yep. Sorry, sorry I was to add, you mentioned the 30 tab model. I think that there's an allure to, um, information and detail sometimes in investing where oftentimes it ends up being false precision. And I think a model is super helpful kind of to Gene's point where, you know, you can look at the numbers, you can put in some forward estimates and just see 
what that does in terms of, of value that it might spit out and what you might be willing to pay. But going back to the idea of conviction, you're never going to find conviction in a model, whether it has three tabs or 30 tabs or 300,000 tabs, it doesn't matter. You, you can model yourself to death. You always find conviction, I think, when you look at intangibles and when you look at companies and really figure out what's behind the company, why do the customers love the product? How big is the market? And why are customers going to keep buying this product to the point of persistent growth? such that whatever numbers you put in the model, you might say, well, this is crazy. This is never going to happen. And then it actually happens. So that, that I think is the careful balancing act that you have to use to make sure that you're not doing anything silly by using the models, making sure you pay attention to the fundamentals, but leaving that door open for the intangible things to kind of work their magic, because ultimately it is magic when persistent growth works. Doug has a fantastic piece up on the Deepwater site about conviction. He says a couple of things in that. He says that, you know, you, there, conviction is truly rare out there. You should avoid mediocrity. And just like he said, conviction lives in the intangibles. Doug, it sounds like whether you believe or you don't believe in the efficient market hypothesis that stocks are priced correctly where they should be, it seems like there are pockets of things you can look at that the rest of the crowd is not. Is that a fair statement that when you're looking at a lot of these opportunities, it's not so much about PE ratios and quarterly results, but the things that maybe are in the intangibles or like the uh, the future trends like Gene was talking about? We do think that. And I think there's there's really a sweet spot of if you break up, this is a, a huge generalization, but if you break up timescales that investors often think on into three buckets, I think a lot of the market is really focused on the next quarter or what's going to happen this year. We're kind of myopic. And then you know earnings hit and the stock goes up 10% or down 10%. And then you have to ask, well, did anything really change? That should always be your first question in earnings. Not did they miss the number, but did anything fundamentally change about the business? So that's the first bucket where I think a lot of investors live. The second bucket, and maybe we saw this become super popular in 2020 and 2021, is the long duration bucket. People saying, well, I'm going to look out 10 years. And I know for sure in 10 years, self-driving is going to be a thing or EVs or AI and so I'm just going to pay whatever price I have to pay because I have to be associated with that idea. You know, that's bucket number two. And I think we saw the dangers of that bucket in 2021. I actually think, and this is where we probably spend most of our time, there's this sort of middle ground bucket, which is, can you look out sort of 24 to maybe 40 months, right? Three, three and a half years and say, well, what is the world going to look like then? And how do we build to that world in three years which can incorporate some of those quarterly and annual things that will happen in the near term, but also not be so myopic that you say, this is all that matters. Um, and at the same time, balancing you know, the reality that in 10 years, the world's gonna be totally different. Whatever you think is going to happen today, the world might have solved it in a completely different way. And whatever you thought was a sure thing, if you just held on long enough, uh, becomes an uncertainty given that kind of time span. And so I think it's really about that three to five year bit. That's where if you as an investor can look at that, you know, time frame, and say, can I find conviction here and then test it along the way? I think that's where a lot of investors find good success. Gene, you mentioned AI automation and metaverse uh, earlier in the conversation. Is that the sweet spot middle bucket that's three and a half years out from where we are today? Are there any other trends that you think we should be paying more attention to right now? I think another is related to fintech. It's not a very flashy segment, but is something that is within that transformation bucket. And 
Well, we've had a, a kind of surge of app usage around banking over the last five years, digital payments, transfer payments, uh, being able to go peer to peer with a money transfer. Uh, the, the kind of the substance of how banking is done, it's still largely done when you walk into a, a bank office, a retail branch. And uh, that we think is something that is going to go away. And the way it manifests itself opportunities is we're investors in a company, New Bank. Uh, they're based in Brazil, but they're basically the fastest growing bank in, uh, in, in Latin America, especially in Brazil, have opportunities to grow. And one of the challenges that you don't realize is that branch system that we know in the US, which has a lot of friction around it that needs to go away. It's, there is even more friction around it when it comes to developing uh, markets for security purposes. And so just to be able to get a, a checking or savings account opened up, it's a lot of work. And they've really taken a first principles approach to this, made it easy, also has some debt instruments that aren't typically available to people uh, in, in those regions. And you see this kind of uh, transformative piece. So we don't talk as much about it just because it doesn't, it's not as, um, doesn't require as much attention as some of those other kind of core themes, but we think fintech is an area. We're also investors in Block, aka Square. Uh, we think that they've got a great opportunity. I think some of the things that Apple's doing related to be more aggressive in the savings, uh, this uh, high uh, yield savings account that they've come out with recently are just an example of some of the banking transformation, the fintech transformation that's going on in the in the U.S. and well, Block will be competing with Apple. We think that they will be taking more market share from uh, traditional banks. It's it's ultra popular with millennials in terms of kind of a a banking the the main primary banking app. And so, New Bank and Block are examples of what we think is another kind of uh, transformative area, which is related to fintech. SQ is Block and NU for New Bank. If anyone wants to follow along with those fintech ideas that we just mentioned. I do want to chat about some of the other larger holdings that you guys have with Deepwater, but maybe first to give a little bit of context uh, right now. Let's go from 10,000 foot level to maybe 2,000 foot level. I've got to ask, you know, we, we want to be long-term investors, but I know there's influence of the short term, right? We've seen interest rates increasing uh, increasingly aggressively right now. And, um, you know, in addition to that, you know, you see a lot of companies, Meta, Microsoft, Amazon, everyone else is laying off tens of thousands of employees. As tech investors, how do you think about this macro climate right now? We know that these companies really can step on the accelerator when money is cheap or their stock is uh, perhaps fairly valued and they're able to issue equity. Uh, now it seems like they're kind of cutting back, trimming a lot of the fad. How do you think about the environment for tech, tech investing? Uh, Gene, you want to answer that one first and then I'll come to Doug next? Yeah. For sure. So we think there's uh, first a question that you need to ask yourself, which is, do you want to time the market? And if, if that is uh, one of your priorities, we think that it's best to be cautious right now. There's been uh, more caution with institutional investors over the past year that continues to be uh, near record highs. I think it's appropriate in part because while we're seeing a stabilization of interest rates, we still haven't seen what we think is the economic slowdown. More recently, Home Depot has reported they had their second quarter in a row of disappointing results and uh, that is after beating expectations for 15 quarters. And we ultimately believe that just this, the macro piece or the, the fundamentals are gonna start to play a bigger role in terms of how investors view the market. And so if the timing is important for you, we're cautious. Uh, we still have high cash positions uh, within the account with this uh, 
uh, Deepwater account, the, the, the fund that we're talking about here, does have a provision for timing the market. And so we still have this uh, cautious uh, view, which begs the question of when we will uh, get more constructive. And the time we get more constructive is when we see more disappointing results effectively. And that is just part of being having conviction is to have conviction when uh, people are more concerned. And so ultimately, we want to be increasing our equity exposure when companies are, are disappointing and try to capitalize on some of that downturn. So that's the, the first question to ask. If your uh, other piece is you're not as concerned about the timing the market, you just want to own great companies. And that's where we spend most of our time is just trying to figure out which of those great companies to own and, and how to appropriately position those. And Doug can answer that piece. Yeah, I think that ties right back to the concept of persistent growth that we've been talking about. And I think the simple reality, if you think about uh, rates, is that, I mean, every asset class is sensitive to rates. It's not just tech. We talk a lot about how tech has re-rated as the Fed has raised interest rates. But I mean, if you think of equities as um, sort of perpetual bonds, where you get the ongoing cash flows from the business as your coupon, when rates go up, uh, yields need to go up just simply for opportunity costs. And the same is true for equities or real estate or other bonds. And for yields to go up, prices need to go down. That's the simple mechanism that you can kind of, I think, keep in your head about this. How we think that ties to persistent growth is that if you can find those companies that can defy gravity and continue to grow faster or longer, they're able to continue to generate growing cash flows, whereby your future yields will be worth the rate that you're paying today, even if it might look like you're paying a quote unquote crazy price, which often comes with some growth investing. And I think that's where we really try to ground ourselves when we talk about buying great businesses, buying persistent growth. We try to use that three-year lens and say, okay, interest rates are probably going to change in that three-year period. What's a reasonable long-term rate to assume? It's probably somewhere in the threes. Um, and then what would the cash flow yield kind of look like on some of these assets as we think about the growth opportunities that they have ahead of them? And, and thoughts on valuation, either Doug or Gene, are you building DCFs in the models and then you're saying, okay, this is the price that we want to, we want to buy it, or is it a little bit more flexible if you get the right company, you're not as hard and fast about the rules for that. Thoughts on the right price to buy or the valuation models that you have? We use sort of three approaches, I would say. We sort of marry them all. Um, and sometimes it depends on the asset because some are longer duration sort of, sort of stories. Uh, but we do use, you know, a, a, T, a DCF, 10-year sort of DCF, and just say what what kind of has to happen for this to make sense, given a given a hurdle. Um, I also personally like to use a, a much more simple sort of stripped-down DCF, where you're using a multiple on free cash flow or, or yield, again, thinking out kind of three years in that model, and a hurdle rate uh, in that case. And then we also do pay attention to earnings, because I think the market obviously pays a lot of attention to earnings. I think from, from a fundamental investing standpoint, you really think about owning a company, you want to think about the cash flows. If you think about owning a stock, and sometimes the company and the stock aren't the same thing, in the long run, they should be. In the shorter run, they may not be. Um, but if you think about the stock, I think that's often much more earnings driven than it is free cash flow driven. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. 
With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, let's talk about some of those stocks. Let's stop talking about the higher level, bigger picture things. Let's get our hands dirty and get into the nitty gritty of some positions here. Uh, your largest position is Meta Platforms, M-E-T-A. Uh, my goodness, controversial one and one that makes it in the news a lot, Gene, but uh, you know, certainly some strong competitive advantages to that one. Why do you guys like Meta Platforms so much? Comes back to that persistent growth and the specific piece about uh, growing faster for longer in this case is based on their daily active user number. It grew at 4% in the March quarter. That was an acceleration from 2% growth in the previous several quarters. And so you have this huge number, 2 billion monthly or daily active users. That's a big number that's hard to do. They're doing that, they're growing. And what that means is there are more opportunities for them to sell ads. Uh, that is had a headwind relative to the macro, obviously. But as they continue to grow that base, uh, there's uh, new opportunities for them to sell ads. And the biggest piece of that opportunity in the next one to two, three years that Doug talked about is going to be relative to more tools uh, that are used by advertisers. And to quickly talk about two of those tools that can drive persistent growth. One of them is better attribution. And since changes that Apple's made around tracking, it's been more difficult for companies like Meta to track users and give data back to advertisers but they're using AI to help inform advertisers about ways to build campaigns that is going to attract more advertising dollars. Separately, AI can be used for generative purposes to create content, create ad campaigns uh, that can uh, basically improve the efficiency of what advertisers are going for. And so we think that AI, there's real substance. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg has talked a lot about this. And the second piece about longer uh, persistent growth related to meta, of course, is the metaverse. And uh, I'd say that uh, most investors think that this is going to be a, a version of uh, 3D TV, something that there was a lot of talk about, but it never really impacted our lives. In the case of the metaverse, we think that it's the natural platform beyond the smartphone. And if you have a belief that the smartphone is where uh, uh, innovation is going to end when it comes to consumer tech, then there's no need for the metaverse. If you believe there's going to be some platform that's more immersive, whether it's 2D or 3D or a wearable, uh, beyond the smartphone, then it's going to be some form of the metaverse, and we think the company's well positioned. On top of all that, even though the stock is up 100% more recently, it's still relatively inexpensive relative to its growth opportunities, still trading at the cheapest earnings multiple uh, for off of next year of any big tech. 
bears might point out that Zuckerberg and co are spending $30 billion a year on CapEx, largely related to the metaverse or forward projects. Uh, how would you respond to that, Gene? Is that a needed investment? Is there kind of the trendsetter? I would break it down into two pieces. 10 of that 30 is based on the metaverse and they're gonna to continue to spend in that. I think that if the future plays out like we believe, that will be well-spent money. If it doesn't, they will reduce that spend and you'll get some earnings leverage. The other 20 billion is in infrastructure. A lot of that related to this next computing wave that we're seeing, and we're gonna hear a lot more of big tech spending large numbers like that. So I would put that as essentially status quo for big tech. And my, and my response to the bears on that is, if you're worried about CapEx, I think you're worried about the wrong things. CapEx for big tech has historically been part of how these companies build their moats. Um, the ability to spend $30 billion a year is afforded to very few companies. And if you look at Apple, you look at Amazon, you look at Google, you look at Microsoft, all of them are spending tens of billions of dollars a year in CapEx. And what it does is when you think about the venture world, which we also spend time in venture capital, we have funds that invest in you know, everything from seed stage to late stage private companies, the ability for the mega cap tech companies to invest that much into infrastructure um, really sets them apart from anything that a venture backed company could ever do. And so I see that as a moat where, you know, understand if you're looking for some reason to be negative on the stock, you might point to why do you have to spend so much on CapEx? I would say it's just reinforcing the reality that these mega cap tech companies are going to be really hard to touch as we think about those next paradigms, whether it be AI, whether it be the metaverse, um, they're going to have a huge lead and they're going to have the infrastructure to support it. Sounds great. Meta sounds like it's like it's spelled M-E-T-A, uh, one of the largest positions. Another one that you guys really like is CrowdStrike, the cybersecurity company. Uh, we know that there's a lot more threat surfaces that you need to protect against as the internet uh, becomes more and more ubiquitous, uh, what can you tell us about CrowdStrike that you like so much? There's, there's two big things. One is to your point around cyber and just these attack services, it just, they just get broader and broader from a corporate perspective every year. Um, I think that cyber is one area where we're going to see that persistent growth from a market perspective where every year enterprises are going to have to spend more money to make sure that they stay ahead of the threats and keep their sensitive data and especially customer data protected. Uh, what CrowdStrike does is they focus on endpoint security. So they're really trying to secure things like phones and laptops. And especially, you know, now that we have work from home or flexible working, um, everybody has, you know, these devices out in the wild at this point. And so I think endpoint has become even more important over the last few years with COVID. Um, but that's kind of piece number one for us is we think there is a persistent growth market there and they're the leader in a really important part of a persistent growth market. To put it in a little bit of perspective, the company at their last investor briefing, which was a couple months ago, is talking about doubling ARR, roughly doubling by fiscal 26. So in the next uh, three or four years, if I remember which, which calendar they're on and then doubling it again to uh, 10 billion in five years after that. So they think they have a huge opportunity ahead of them. We agree with that. And uh, you know, if you can forex kind of essentially your revenue base in a seven to eight year period, we think that the stock is gonna do really well alongside that. The second piece, and I think this is a little bit more of optionality for them, is there's a theme in the cyber world around consolidation, vendor consolidation. 
And if you look at how some of these enterprises are managing their cybersecurity issues, they're working with dozens and dozens of vendors. I remember uh, looking at a diligence call of a, I think it was a probably Fortune 1000 company, so a fairly sizable company. And they said that they were working with more than 100 different cybersecurity vendors to address all their needs, which is a crazy number. And the person was saying, it's just really hard to manage. And they want to reduce that 100 down to like a dozen. And so for us, we kind of spend time asking ourselves, okay, if there is this consolidation play, who has the products where you can kind of take out some of these smaller vendors? And who are the big vendors that these customers trust right now and they want to spend more with? We think CrowdStrike is one of the answers to that question. And so we think aside from just the overall growth in the industry, they also have this potential tailwind from consolidation and being a consolidator, gathering up some of those budgets as uh, enterprises try to reduce the number of vendors they're working with. It's a perfect land and expand model, right, Doug? I mean, cybersecurity moves fast. Like you mentioned, uh, CrowdStrike comes from, Hills from McAfee, you know, their founder and CEO is from McAfee, saw a more efficient way to do it in the cloud. But then that Falcon platforms, I believe got more than 23 modules now. So you can offer different things as customers' needs evolve. Great one, CrowdStrike CRWD. Uh, Gene, did, did you want to add anything on that or should we chat with, about another company here? Let's chat about another one. Yeah, let's go on. Another one that I was familiar with was ACV Auctions. ACVA is the ticker on this one. One that others might be unfamiliar with on the call too. What can you tell us about this one? This one's Doug's passion. Yeah. Doug, the question's to you then. Tell me about ACV Auctions. Yeah. Uh, ACV is an online uh, automotive marketplace. And I think Gene is, is perhaps teasing me slightly in that it's a passion because uh, I have a history, my family has a history in the auction business. And in fact, my, my dad actually used to be an auto auctioneer. He worked at uh, Mannheim, which is one of ACV's big competitors. They're, they were an offline auction. Now they have this simulcast live you know, internet platform that competes with ACV. But anyway, to answer your question, ACV is an online uh, automotive marketplace. And what they're doing is they're essentially helping dealers sell wholesale inventory to other dealers. That's the bottom line. Um, they just reported uh, their quarter last week, and we were we were really encouraged by the quarter. I think that uh, one of the concerns about the story has been, can they get to profitability? Um, and actually, we we had a larger than expected margin uh, print in this last quarter. They've had really great attach rates with some of their value-added services. Um, what they do, aside from facilitating these transactions, you can think of it kind of like eBay. Right, where they're facilitating transactions between uh, these auto wholesalers. They also add products that are sort of like insurance. In some cases, they have a product called Go Green, um, where if someone buys a car, a wholesaler buys a car, and there's some defect that they, they didn't identify before, you sort of avoid the arbitration process and ACV deals with the value discrepancy in the car. So insurance-like products have been good for them. They're good margin. Um, they also have a transportation product um, where they can get a car from one wholesaler to another from from seller to buyer. And so, you know, it's one that we've become, I think, growingly excited about. Um, it's still a smaller cap company. So, you know, as you, as you said, not a lot of people have heard about it. I think even the institutional investor community, um, it's probably underfollowed, underwatched. And as they continue to print some of these good quarters and and hopefully keep beating numbers in that three-year period we're always looking for, 
hopefully we'll have more investors paying more attention and sort of agreeing with us as the stock continues to work. Uh, Doug, Doug, did I hear correctly that you're recommending the company that was a competitor of the company that your dad worked for? Yeah, my dad doesn't work there anymore. He's clear, uh, free and clear. So no, uh, no insider information or, or competitive issues. I, I was just wondering about Thanksgiving dinner, if it made for interesting conversations <laughs> yeah. at the table. That's a good one. Yeah, we're all good. We're all good. And, and then thoughts on EVs. Is EVs changing this industry at, at, at all? And specifically Tesla. I know that Elon loves a direct model versus dealerships, which is kind of the traditional way of doing it. Has that changed kind of the industry or the landscape at all, do you think? I don't think so. I would I would navigate us back to that, you know, time frame question. So certainly not in the next quarter to year time frame one. I don't think that EVs, even though they are obviously growing in popularity, I don't think the adoption will affect uh, the used car market in any meaningful way over the next kind of three to four years. If you zoom out 10 to 15 years, you know, maybe there's something you can make a case around then, but I think you're still going to have used EVs. Not all of them will be Teslas. Gene and I could have really fun debates about what percentage may or may not be Teslas. Um, but you know, I, I think when you think about the time scale that you're really investing in, it seems unlikely that EVs will really cause an issue in any investable time frame. Fantastic. Uh, go ahead, Gene. No, I just uh, welcome the debate. We'll have to come back and debate EV market share, Doug. It'll be always entertaining. It is. It's a rapidly changing industry, to say the least. Um, Gene, I'll give you the, the option of one more to talk about. Would you like to talk about CarMax, Everbridge, or Workday, all, all three of which are, are holdings of, of, the, of the fund? Any of those that you'd like to briefly touch no, on? I'm going to go to uh, focus on the larger cap, and I'm going to uh, defer to Doug. Yeah, go ahead, Doug. Uh, CarMax, Everbridge, or Hemant. Let's talk about Everbridge, maybe. Can we talk about Everbridge? That's a less familiar name for a lot of people. Yeah, we can talk a little bit about that one. They they provide um, essentially um, essential messaging products for governments, for example. They actually just had a little bit of a snafu with Florida where they sent out, if you can imagine the alert on your phone that makes that screaming noise that you want to turn off as fast as possible. Um, they facilitate some messaging like that when there are emergency things that um, communities whether it be government communities or otherwise, sort of need to know about, uh, Everbridge helps facilitate the distribution of those messages. And so it's a really interesting company because they focus on this sort of niche product. Um, they just had a new CEO come on board from Google about a year, I think, ago now. Um, and it's a story that I think, like ACV, is, is a little bit underfollowed. And um, one that has that characteristic of persistence in the sense that there's not a lot of other companies that really offer this particular service. Um, and so we think they kind of have this unmitigated runway to continue to capture share of something that probably won't change. You know, whether we're, we're living in the metaverse or we're continuing to use smartphones, getting information critical messages to people in timely manners, I think it's always going to be an important thing in the real world. And so having that infrastructure as, as Everbridge does, I think will uh, continue to be part of uh, important services that customers need. Well, fantastic, as, as we're wrapping this up and with the opportunity to speak with two seasoned veterans who have been investors in the tech space for several decades, uh, I, I couldn't pass on the opportunity to do a fun lightning round. It's a little bit off script here, but if you guys are ready, I'm gonna rapid fire a couple of questions for both of you as we close this out. 
Uh, Gene, I will come to you first with the first lightning round question is, what is the most exciting application for AI today? Chatbots today, autonomy over the next three years. Doug, how about that? Anything else? Um, I can't disagree with that. I think, yeah, I think it is autonomy. I, I think it's over the next five plus years. So I would just change the time frame on that. Okay, second question, Doug, I'll go to you first on this one, which is that OpenAI is still a private company, but just had a private market valuation of up to $29 billion. Uh, Sam Altman says it's going to be one of the most expensive companies in the world because of all the costs required for training that's involved with AI. Uh, knowing that we're at $29 billion today, uh, what is the what do you think the proposed valuation of OpenAI is in three years, and are they publicly traded? So we're in 2023. What's the uh, the valuation of OpenAI in 2026, and is it public? Valuation is probably over 100 billion. I don't think they're publicly traded, and I do think the uh, quick bonus answer that the cost of training is one of the most important problems in AI to be solved right now. Um, we are super excited about the ability for uh, some companies that are in what we call the second generation of AI chips that sort of space evolving from NVIDIA GPUs uh, to find a solution that's cheaper. We have a company in our venture portfolio called Rain Neuromorphics that we think is uh, possibly a solution to that. But I think that's a space investors should be paying a lot of attention to is how do we solve the cost of all these models? Because ultimately, if it's too expensive to run the software and allow it to continue to learn, it's not going to be able to do all the great things we think it can. Gene, $100 billion is the actual retail price of OpenAI higher or lower than that by 2026? Before Doug answered, yeah, that was the number that came into my head. I think it's spot on that $100 billion, and I would just put uh, want to uh, emphasize, under, underscore one thing that Doug just mentioned. There are two things to take away from our conversation today. It's one thing, Deepwater invests in persistent growth companies. And second, remember the name Rain Neuromorphics. This is one that potentially could go to zero, but has the potential to be a 100x type of upside and could be in the same uh, conversation as AMD, Intel, and NVIDIA in the next decade. And then my, my final question, Gene, I'll start with you on this one, because you made some fantastic calls over the years, Apple being one of them. But let's talk about big, big tech companies. Um, the two largest in the market right now are Apple and Microsoft. Apple's a $2.7 trillion company, Microsoft about $2.4 trillion right now. Uh, which company will have the largest market capitalization of publicly traded firms in the year 2030? Is it one of those two companies or is it something else? I think it's Apple. I've been a long believer in Apple, but I, I don't keep that belief based on tradition. It's what I see going forward. I think there are two areas that you're going to see progressively. Number one is that Investors are going to start to see this more as a consumer staple company. Surprisingly, consumer staples trade at higher multiples than tech companies. And just the growing base of users, 2 billion plus, grew at 8% in the December quarter. I think that's something that is a, a faster pace of its uh, user growth than Microsoft has. And on top of that, they've got some new markets to get into. Um, when it comes to Apple, it's related to the metaverse. We'll likely see their new, at least a preview of their new wearable headset. In the next month, I won't really add revenue in the next for the next few years, but that's something. And don't forget about the car. And uh, they want to build a car, whether or not that sees the light of day is something else. But that is a big market. That could be 25% of their revenue in 2030. And so that's a, a large market that they could go after. When it comes to Microsoft, they have an opportunity just to AI-ify all of their products 
to me, that's not as exciting as going into new markets that Apple has that optionality up to. So I'll take Apple on that. Doug, last word is yours. It's convincing case. Do you agree Apple's the largest company by 2030? I think I would take the field. If I had to pick one, I'll give you two in the field and why. I think Google or Meta are maybe dark horses to be one or the other of uh, of biggest market cap company. The reason for Google could be if they do figure out AI, I still think, and we probably all agree, AI is is the next internet. It's probably the biggest opportunity from a tech standpoint that we'll see in the next 10 plus years. And I think they're, they're un, they've been underestimated how much work they've done in AI. And I think how good their products will ultimately be. If they figure that out, they could be the biggest company. Meta, the dark horse case is that the metaverse actually happens and takes off. Uh, and if that really does happen, they own this, you know, more vibrant social layer where people are spending even more of their time. It's hard to imagine why they wouldn't be the most valuable company in the world. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, thanks for letting me have some fun and, and ask some lightning round questions off script. Really appreciate you both being on the Seven Investing Podcast here today. Thanks. Thank you. And if anyone wants to learn more about Deepwater Asset Management, their website is deepwatermgmt.com. You can learn about their approach to long-term investing, especially in the tech sector. Uh, so thanks to Gene and Doug. Thank you for tuning into this edition of our Seven Investing Podcast, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We hope you have a great week.